Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening, wherever you are, whatever time uh, you are listening. Here is, again, the three of us talking about contract law. And by the three of us, if you are new to this, Dr. Tim Dodsworth, Maggie Hemsworth, and Dr. Severine Santier. And today it is our podcast number 13. Lucky, unlucky? Well, we shall see. Today we are talking it about. Maybe say it's just the... one big mistake. <laughs> <Nah>. No, <laughs> we shall see. So today we are talking about a court of appeal. Decision, Monsular IQ Limited and Wooden Park Limited. We are uh, very grateful for the uh, for our sponsor, Newcastle Law School, for allowing the three of us to continue our discussion. This is a landlord and tenant case for solar panel on piece of land. It's a typical landlord and tenant case in the sense of the dispute being over the review of the rent clause. And the issues here are over the calculation of the rent review. In this, so the parties had been, had contracted back in July 2013. The contract was for a term of 25 years and six months, to be precise, and the use of the land was uh, for a solar farm. The lease, the review rent was done on a very precise calculation which is referred into the judgment as the formula. But the question was whether there was an error in the review rent. In the High Court, Justice Fancourt applied... Funnily enough, Fancourt again. Have you noticed? Yes, he is... Uh, We're following Fancourt yes. through, the, through, through his cases somehow. Isn't, isn't that odd? Because... Uh, so in the last podcast, we, we were discussing his judgment as well. How odd. Yes, I know. Yes, I was. I can't remember. Was he right then, according to us? Everyone's wrong, according to us. <laughs> <laughs> wrong, wrong or right? I think he's right this time. Well, I think sure. he's wrong this time. Oh, oh, we're okay. interrupting Severine's, Severine's rather good introduction, considering we didn't oh, have one Severine. two minutes ago. <laughs> so now that you have... Uh, interrupted the flow, uh, it's not going to work anymore. So, Justice Van Court in the uh, High Court said that it was so the case had to be decided applying the uh, very well known Chartbrook case, uh, in particular Lord Hoffman's 
uh, principle, I think that's uh, what he refers as to the child principle, whereby there is, in order to decide uh, the matter, the court need to see whether there is a clear mistake which doesn't reflect the party's intention. And the second part uh, of the test was uh, whether the clause produces an absurd, irrational and arbitrary result who could not have been intended uh, by the parties. And therefore, the uh, fan court decided that, yes, indeed, the rent uh, review clause, there was a mistake in it. The landlord appealed and the Court of Appeal confirms uh, the decision of uh, fan court. So this is a case which brings two issues, the issue of contract interpretation, but actually rather interestingly mixed with mistake. And so I think this is a quite an interesting judgment, not necessarily difficult, but really interesting to draw the line between what... Lord Justice Nugi gave uh, the main the, the judgment. Yes, Nugi. And the other. Uh, here's an interesting thought. I don't know if you've twigged this, uh, but Lord Justice Nugi was counsel in the Chartbrook case. Ah, oh, Chartbrook okay. Persimmon. So the wheel has the wheel has come full circle, as it were. He was counsel, I think, for uh, the party who eventually succeeded in the Chartbrook Persimmon Homes debacle. But he's on record of having said, although we won, it's not the way I thought we were going to win, basically. Of course, Lord Hoffman basically took the whole thing over and decided it as he decided it. But it was not exactly how it was argued. But it's interesting now because he's now using uh, the dicta uh -huh. that he must know so well from Chartbrook Persimmon uh, himself while sitting in the Court of Appeal. So don't you think that's That neat? is very neat because, of course, here he went, actually, I don't know whether it is a he or a she, do forgive me, uh, Lord Justice Nugi went into some length to say that, you know, Chardbrook principle, Lord Hoffman's principle, had not been rewritten or had not been revisited by uh, Arnold and Britain. So, yes, quite a neat uh, thing. So, therefore, the case raises both the question, so primarily a question of uh, interpretation but when can the court correct a mistake? Uh, and there is a Chardbrook principle making the distinction between an imprudent outcome and an irrational, arbitrary, nonsensical. So the Court of Appeal here uh, says that there is no need to revisit the Chardbrook uh, principle. Arnold, Arnold and Britain doesn't uh, really apply here, uh, where the parties have made a drafting mistake so that the language doesn't reflect the intention of the parties and there is no need to redraw the line between an imprudent outcome and an irrational arbitrary. So fine distinction here, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about here. In between. But it's probably worth saying now, before we get going to the listeners, if the if listener hasn't actually looked at this case, which I, I imagine they probably haven't, that this is a formula yes. problem, as it were, and the understanding of a formula. And, and a cynic would say, this is a good example of how lawyers, probably solicitors in this sort of context, aren't that great about getting these sorts of things right, because Chartbrook was a formula type problem. 
a formula for calculating sums to be paid. So I don't know if it's maths or formulae or uh, simply just synaptical ordering of words, uh, but lawyers tend to get this wrong. Or if it comes from the client themselves, perhaps solicitors aren't that great about stopping to think, hang on, has the client got that right? Does that formula actually work? And so people gaily go on assuming the formula works as they assume it to work without stopping to analyze it a little bit. And so it's worth saying to the listener that this is a formula for increasing the rent by reference to the retail price index. And so it read revised rent equals previous year's rent times the RPI for the current year over the RPI for the start year as Severine said in 2013. But if you actually analyze that out and look at figures that you would insert into that formula, you would see that actually that is going to compound a rent increase because you are using RPI for the current year, but RPI also for the start year. Whereas if you only wanted the increase of rent to be in line with the increase in the retail, retail price index for the past year, if you understand what I'm saying at the moment, you would need to cast that formula differently. You would need to have it RPI for current year over RPI for the previous year. Not all the years that have gone prior to 2013, because you are naturally in building a compounding effect with your uh, increase. And that's, I think, at the heart of what, Severine, you are talking about. Is this unintended consequences, but you intended that formula to operate in that way? In which case, this is not a mistake which can be corrective corrected through interpretive tools, the chart book principle as, as you referred to it. Alternatively, is this unintended drafting, if you like? And the sort of simple test that Lord Hoffman is sort of perhaps trying to get us to, to think about is, is the consequence so absurd, irrational, arbitrary, and that sort of language you use, Severine, and I'm just trying to explain to the listener why we're going on about this, is it so absurd, irrational, that cannot have been intended? And that, so that's focusing on the language. Is the language intended as opposed to the consequence? But if the consequence is so arbitrary or irrational, that is an indication, a pretty strong indication, that it can't be what rational, objectively sensible parties meant. And that's why I think the case was argued like it was, and that's probably why I would say his Honourable Fan Court was correct, Court of Appeal was right, but now Tim is going to say, no, you've, you've got that all wrong, Maggie. Court of Appeal, you've got that all wrong. Dare he say that? I, I dare oh. say anything. Um, oh, whether then. I'll survive it, I don't know. So th this is a difficulty. So one one thing, I, straight up, so again, I'm really grateful that you started using the word error, although you went back later on and started saying mistake. So the, the question, I, th I think we do need to draw the line here between mistakes, as in law of mistake, as in unilateral, common, mutual mistake, and then the type of scenario where we've got an error. And I, th I think this 
frustrates me rather with this judgment. So keep going on about this idea of a mistake. And what they really mean is an error. Although, looking at Chartbrook, they seem to still be harping on, because we used that case, what was it, the most recent FSHC case, where it was ratification about for a mistake. Well, actually, in fairness, there are two different doctrines. Interpretation, construction is a a self-contained body of rules and principles, that's fine. That's simply looking at what is the meaning of these words. Right. And you will quite often have at least two alternative meanings. Otherwise, you wouldn't get as far as the Court of Appeal if there are not two uh, reasonably uh, arguable positions. But that's an interpretation. But equally... Which... Both Fancourt yes. and, and Uji at this point say is not part of the problem. Yes. They both say quite clearly, and this, this, this is really a, a problem because what they're saying is, well, we don't have alternative versions of these words, in which case we're in the wrong uh, domain. No, but that's, uh, no, hang on, that, that, that's, that's, that's pushing it way too far. Look, all they are saying is, in some instances many instances probably that get to the court that the nub of the dispute is that the wording is ambiguous either patently or latently in other words on its face it looks ambiguous because uh, the English words could have more than one meaning and that is obvious to any reader but it also could be a case of ambiguity on on a latent basis. That is, once one looks at the background matrix, the background facts, the context in which the parties were operating, some ambiguity arises through that process. So all they're saying is many cases are of that nature. But there are other types of cases that are equally needing to be dealt with as a matter of interpretation or construction, which are not of that type. Nevertheless, they are still fall within the principles and rules about interpretation and construction. It is simply that the wording itself is not ambiguous, but it still raises the question as to whether the consequences here are, as Severin put it, so absurd, irrational, arbitrary, that they cannot have been intended. Ergo, some mistake... I'm I'm quite happy with the word error because I'm talking about interpretation or construction at this point. Some error has been made in the drafting. Yes, so and we agree. We, yeah, so we're just tackling the problem through the lens, as it were, of interpretation or construction. Now, yes. come out of that body of rules, entirely possible, because contract law, given it's quite a wide church and there are a number of different bodies of rules or principles that might be engaged in any one factual circumstance, come out of that entirely. It is equally possible that a mistake, to use the pucker word that you're keen about, we use now, Tim, is the right word to use here. When we are trying to analyse a problem using the body of rules under the doctrine, there is such a thing, and I think there is such a thing, but there's some debate about that, under the sort of doctrine of the law of mistake. And then you're quite right, Tim, one ought to, if one being absolutely pedantic or accurate, and then use the word mistake. And in this setting, that's how the Court of Appeal says, in this setting, to argue it thus 
it would be under that bit of the law of mistake that lawyers tend to label common mistake. And that is so because what we are saying is both parties, when they arrived at the drafting that they eventually signed and agreed here, were mistaken as to the language that they were using. They assumed it had the meaning and intent that they both were working on. But as things transpired and you actually analyse the wording carefully, as I said uh, at the beginning here, you find that you were wrong. Uh, what you thought it meant was not what it meant. And that's quite okay to uh, be arguing using the language of the law of mistake. As long as you remember it's common mistake, because you're having to say that both parties had the same shared assumption as to the meaning of this language, which once the, the court has done the process of interpretation and construction, has been shown to be an error. Have I convinced you that it's, it's fine, this is an entirely sound law to be looked at, firstly in terms of interpretation construction, and then separately, entirely distinctly, under the label, if you like, under the category, the body of rules that we know as mistake. That's fine. I, that's all I'm so saying. So very elegantly argued, and I will agree with half but of that. you still that. think I'm wrong. But you're also saying the court of I, appeals I am. Wrong. I'm going right out man, there. Isn't it? Um, well, first of all, <laughs> yes, I agree. There's two two separate bodies here, and I may not use the word pedantic. I'd, I'd say rigorous. In a rigorous approach, yes, I, and I'm going to stick with that. I think we need to be using okay. error to keep so, two. So apart. we use the word error when we're talking about interpretation and construction, and we'll use the word mistake when we talk about the law. Yes, yes. So we and agree that's on that. where yes, I would agree with that. But perhaps I will be with. Tim here that in and the court itself does mix mistake and error. I mean, at paragraph 35, Lord Justice Nugie said this is as plain as a case of mistake as can be. And then afterwards, you know, use the word error. So, use, you know, wearing a, a pedagogical hat here, it is perhaps true that, you know, because the word mistake is so loaded in terms of a vitiating factor that perhaps even though what you have said Maggie is absolutely clear I think to the listeners it is important that here we are in the context of contractual interpretation and therefore maybe an error using the word error and you know the vocabulary is so important maybe that would have been better. So let's let's exclude something here from our discussion. So if we're going to decide on this, on, on having mistake on the one hand and error on the other hand, and, and we see this, this is, fun, you know, the first paragraph of the actual substantive judgment, paragraph 19, it's excluded right away. It says, you know, something along the lines of if we're going to do this and rectification, it could only be corrected by rectification and no such claim has been made. So in this case, we can say, why is there yes. no claim being made for common mistake? Because that's the only mistake that could work here. Well, I guess you could argue unilateral mistake. I think that one's easy to answer. Firstly, if you look at the facts, the parties were not at arm's length. So uh, although, as Severine said, it, it's landlord and tenant, that's true. 
but both the landlord and the Just tenant were corporate entities. Yes. They were corporate entities, and the director of each party was the directing mind of both companies. All right. So this is as close to contracting with oneself, as it were, that the, the, the law yes. will envisage, because companies, as everybody knows, are separate legal entities. Uh, and so you might well have the same leading light, leading man or woman controlling both of them, but they are separate entities. So the communications yeah. between those parties, and you probably didn't even have different firms of solicitors, will have been so scant, as it were, to not really be very helpful in any claim for rectification. Because remember, for rectification, you need to be able to show a common intention, a shared mutually common intention, because that's where we would have to go in this sort of case, uh, which is what the language the judges use, cross the line. In other words, there has been overt communication, which the court could actually stand back and read, basically, uh, and see for themselves. And where you've got such a close relationship like this, I very much doubt that there was anything much. So rectification would be pretty difficult to achieve. Added to which, because of FSHC, Four Seasons Healthcare, and that glass case in the Court of Appeal, uh, and Lord Justice Leggett, as he then was, now Lord Leggett, went to some pains of saying that where you want to have rectification of an, an arrangement that's not itself a binding contract, you're going to have to produce evidence of subjective intention of both parties. Now, that is a very, very tall order. And so in many instances, even in an arm's length transaction, that's going to be very difficult to achieve. So those two things together, I think, explain why nobody thought this is not going to be a sensible line to take. Our strongest argument is on the interpretation that this formula is they'd made such a mess of this formula that it can't have been what either party thought it meant. Okay, so I, I agree. I, I actually genuinely agree, particularly with the subjective approach. I think I think Legat's point, and, and note that he does take a shot at Sharp uh, Book as well. And all right, and I entirely disagree with ah, him. Ah, you see, and that's that's probably why we differ here, because I entirely agree with him. But there we go. So we'll have to do Four Seasons Healthcare and yes. Glass. Oh, there we go. We've yes. got the next yeah. podcast sorted glass already. I give up at FSHC, then. I think. Yeah. yeah. Glass Trust Corporation. There we go. That, yeah, okay. one, that one. Whatever that one I is. Think that's huge. That is a wrong, wrong direction. <laughs> well, I think I think it was who was it? Adam anyway, Adam Shaw Mellor anyway, quite nicely we, we in his article in the Journal of Business Law explains that actually the subjective approach is quite relevant because we're looking here at equity. But yes, quite right. We'll we'll look at that in a well I mean yeah it does still touch on what we're talking about today. So it, th there we've got the subjective approach and the subjective approach is simply not going to work. So the only way we can now look at it is that objectively we can find that the parties had a slip up in what they were writing. Yeah, and, and if you think about it, if if any listeners looked at Arnold and Britain, for example, because that's Supreme Court and so more likely 
people will have looked at that at that one. Um, we're a million miles from that sort of, I can't even say formula there, because in Arnold and Britain, it was simply the rent will be increased 10% uh, per annum or 10% every three years or something of that nature. You know, it was such a very simple uh, a little statement, as it were, that it gave uh, any party un unhappy with the consequences of that very little room for manoeuvre, as actually was borne out in the Supreme Court, to say that that was a mistake. You know, that's not it was so absurd, irrational uh, and extreme that no none of us can have in intended that. So, you know, Lord Newberger there in Arnold Britain is saying, well, basically he's throwing up his hands and saying, you know, what do you expect us to do? You know, we, we can't rewrite your contracts. This is just so simple. Uh, how can 10% per annum mean anything other than 10% per annum? H how can you understand it as anything different? Whereas if you compare that with the formula, and it is a real formula here for Monsola, and also the formula in Chartbrook, which is a nightmare to try and understand what that formula actually meant, you can see much, much scope for arguing that as a matter of interpretation or construction, uh, this formula did not have the meaning as it was drafted as the parties thought it had. Okay, so that's where we get to an interesting one, I think, because in, in, in Arnold and Britain, I'm going to say Lord Newberger took slightly more nuanced approach in that he was saying, well, at the time, this seemed like a reasonable clause. And now circumstances have changed. Yeah. And actually, now that we look at it, knowing where the economy go is has gone, yes, it's a pretty ridiculous clause, but that's a risk you took. Right. So in other words, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, because here's the point about the difference between unintended drafting, unintended interpretation meaning, that is the avenue for the court to correct, corrective interpretation, fine, on the one hand, and on the other hand, unintended consequences, which are not so absurd, irrational, arbitrary, as Severine said at the beginning, as to uh, give rise to some sort of uh, suggestion that it can't have been what the parties intended. So in Arnold and Britain, this looks like uh, unintended consequences that became unintended through the passage of time and the acquiring of knowledge of what happened with the inflation rates. So far less clear for a case for corrective interpretation. But I think here it is worth mentioning that, you know, the line, the Charbrook line of the distinction. So you've gone into, Maggie, the, the possibility for the courts yes. to consider the clause itself as yes. well as its intent. And that's where the distinction here is really interesting. So Lord Justice Nugie went to some length to explain the distinction between so why can we go into the consequences so there is a distinction between the court refers it constantly here an imprudent bargain for want of a better word that might be actually more expensive for one parties but there are lots of very good so the, the court will not rewrite the bargain as uh, lord justice uh, nugi says simply because 
that a bargain is more expensive than they had thought, but maybe, you know, there are lots of very valid reasons yes. for entering which, into something. Which the court so is still never re- privy that still to, and that's, that's the problem. I know, but that's where the, you know, I, I think for the listeners to appreciate the distinction where the line is, why in this particular case the court considered that indeed it was necessary that the clause could not possibly be what the parties intended and so here it fell on um, tenant here this is a good uh, outcome not uh, for the landlord but the line is something this which turns out to be more expensive but there are valid reason for the party's intention to have entered into that particular uh, clause even though it is more expensive even though it can be to see it, it can be seen to be imbalanced as opposed to something which is so completely ridiculous and here the court says you know the irrational uh, nonsensical arbitrary so it's interesting to see that here it went it was an arbitrary i think if we look at the figures to show that indeed there was an error in the mathematics of the formula and the compounding that you were talking about uh, uh, maggie earlier I think these in the judgment, uh, the rent payable would be uh, of the seventy-six million, as opposed to with less than thirty thousand. So really, the outcome was just so nonsensical, so arbitrary. There was such a huge increase, and I'm hoping here my uh, math are correct. So here, that's it's, where it's uh, worth it was possible peeling for the back to, to the say, basic, very yes, basic principles. Yeah certainly for a, a first-year student, to, to remember those two key things. Firstly, the idea of freedom of contract. Yes, yes. So the law does not rewrite your bargain, and that's what you said, Severine. Yes. And the explanation for that is freedom of contract. And I sometimes say to students, the law takes the view that you're completely free to be an idiot, because the law says it's not for the law to cast your bargain for you. And this may differ with other jurisdictions, actually. Other jurisdictions, I don't know, you're going to tell me France and Germany more happily intervene, as it were, and, and, and fiddle around with a bargain having been struck. But English law takes a very straight line in the interest, in part, about certainty and predictability. But anyway, there is this principle of freedom of contract so the law assumes that parties are rational human beings base but not necessarily sensible or reasonable and that's why a line tends to be drawn that which is unreasonable doesn't appear to be in your good interests doesn't make the grade as it were for interference by the law because you're assumed to be able to be the master or mistress of your own destiny and, and to mess it up if, if you want. Um, but, yes, but it, and even if something is not very good for you, that is okay. Because the law assumes that you're rational yes. rather than reasonable, yes. if the uh, interpretation is irrational, the assumption that the law operates upon is that you did not intend it because it's irrational. Yes. And that's why that threshold is so very high. 
And that, yes. This idea of arbitrary, absurd, irrational. Yes. So I'm going to jump in here because there's so many topics here that I uh, write down my street. One is, one is that point about freedom of contract. I think it is important to men- mention that freedom of contract as a value is always balanced against other values within the system. So freedom of contract is one of them. Um, but we have a multitude of values that are all balanced against each other that, that reveal the result. I mean, uh, values that, that correspond with it would be along the lines of certainty. And quite often, quite crudely, we might say, well, it's often balanced against fairness. But fairness itself has, has a multitude of subvalues as well. So it, it is not just that English law is only about freedom of contract. Otherwise, why else would we have these cases? No, but you'd accept him in the in the context of interpretation. Freedom of contract is, uh, if you like, at the heart of many of the rules, if not all of the rules, that the courts is applying. Well, freedom of contract, but also autonomy. And I think autonomy is probably the, the, the better value here to represent it, although we lump them often together. I think the autonomy of the individuals, and autonomy can be interpreted in, again, a multitude of ways, right? It depends how the state or the enforcers of contracts view their role in relation to the autonomy of the individuals. So is it my role to ensure that you are free in the decision that you're making? i.e. uninhibited by, for example, duress? Or is my role to make sure that autonomy of the bargain is upheld? So I think I think there's a lot of, of values that feed yes, into that. Yes, but I'm making, I'm simply making the point in this particular case and these particular facts that none of these other values are well, actually no. engaged. The, the, the heart, well, not on these facts. But they are. Intention, intention, for example, is a fundamental value that the court is still trying to protect, right? The reason why we allow for mistake, for example, but even, even why we're allowing these rectification cases is that we say, well, actually, that's not what the parties intended. They were free to decide on whatever they wanted, but they didn't because their intention was different. So yes, freedom but of nobody contra- was arguing rectification in this case. I'm, no, but I'm even, even at- interpretation would be justified on the basis that actually that is not what the parties intended. And the moment we go to intention, it's not so much about freedom of contract in the literal meaning. Intention then balances against freedom of contract. Because we're saying actually the real subjective intention... Intention is an aspect of an, the other principle I was going to mention, which is the objectivity principle. So when you talk about intention, objectivity is is writ large through our rules about interpretation and construction. Yes, and the reason we go for objectivity in those cases is because, again, we're balancing against certainty. Because we can't really work out subjectivity properly. And that is, for example, a fundamental reason for German courts taking a different approach. Well, all right, but you could also see it through the lens. You use the word fairness, for example. And quite often I I can see that objectivity has at root an explanation in terms of fairness. You should be judged by the way in which you behave and the words you you use and what you say or do to someone. And, and that's a big deal for contract law. It, it's as much about fairness as anything else. So I, we're not really arguing. It, it's, it's just these things are multifaceted. That is, I don't deny that for a moment. But when we're looking at interpretation, we are looking very closely through this lens of freedom of contract and objectivity, uh, to try and work out what the meaning of the, these words are. And I was just trying to explain that to the listener, 
why it is that the law is as it is, just viewing those particular principles. I accept there are, there are lots of others. Do you know who does a great job at explaining why the law is the way it is? Ah, I know I know what you're going to say now. It's you do, gonna, don't it's you? It's going to do with the University of Newcastle or Newcastle University. How do they like to be called? Newcastle Law School is now offering a brand new LLM in Emerging Technologies and the Law. Find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world. Visit www.newcastle.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Unpacking Content. Thank you. Right. So where do we get stuck? So that LLM is, is going to be across... I'm just asking a question about the LLM. I've got an LLM, but I might, I might ask anyway. Is this a real cross-department? Yes, yes. They're bringing, they're bringing module, the economists oh, okay. and, and uh, politics. It's, a, it's quite an exciting LLM. We're also, I think there's, there's a vulnerability section right as well. Uh-huh. Who might be teaching that? <laughs> oh, I wonder who... Oh. Have we got any points of agreement now? I don't know. What do you think? I think think we do. I mean, I I was going to not come on the the fairness. So, Tim, yes, there are lots of things. um, I'm trying to be an arbiter between, you know, you, Tim, and and, and you, Maggie, because there are lots of things at play here. Indeed, Tim, I completely agree with you that, you know, whenever one value is raised, you know, another one is, is, is going to be uh, raised too and therefore the question uh, is the balance between them uh, as you say in your uh, forthcoming book was i was i was i meant to mention that i don't know you can you this can, is you, a you shameless self-promotion want, across you know, the board isn't it this whole podcast is nothing else but an uh, uh, yeah, self-promotion. no on a serious note i think here they are actually lord justice nuji is very clear or very eager not to mention the fairness one and not mentioning you know that several times he has reiterated the charitable principle that you know that the court will not cannot will not under the guise of uh, interpretation rewrite an imprudent or unfavorable bargain so i think here you know i know we talked about good faith and and and, and fairness in, in in the previous one and i won't mention it too late i have so here this is really clear that you know this was not uh, at play but indeed so i think yes we do have a, a an agreement that other values other principles are at hand here are, sorry other values and uh, other principles uh, are in balance, but here they were keen not to even introduce uh, the notion of fairness here. So do do we think, with respect, that the Court of Appeal was right or wrong on this one? I, I think the Court of Appeal was right. Yes, I'm not I, sure. I, I think the Court of Appeal was right too. Basically, the premise of these type of cases, these construction cases, is you said X, but actually you meant to say Y. Slip up over the pen, you know, our whole discussion that we had by email about, what was it, typo and misspelling. Basically, we're talking about typos here. We, we, you, oh, oh, actually, most, no, no, sorry, we're talking about misspelling. In other words, you meant to say something, but you, you wrote something else. We don't have no, that here. More than typo. Uh, no, it's, it's as Lord Hoffman would say, it's a syntactical error. And that's the sort mm-hmm. of language that he used in chart. Right. But that in all those cases, we know what they actually meant to say. Yes. He talks about an error of syntactical arrangement of words in his in his typical elegance. Right. So you've you've said X 
And I, I entirely agree with him. I am here, in the fan club Maggie. I'm joining you here yeah. in in the fan club. <laughs> it, it beautifully said, and I think he says somewhere else. He says sufficiently yeah. irrational to justify a conclusion yeah. that there has been yeah, a mis- yeah, yeah. linguistic mistake. There's a linguistic mistake. You said X, but you meant to say Y. I say cow, but I mean bull. Right, the typical example type. Well, yes, all right, but they're they're too simple to to warrant the argument. We've got much more complex formula or devices being used and that's how we have the corrective interpretation possible but the fact here that we don't know what they actually meant to say well yes we do destroys the case in no my mind. no we we do because if you look at the formula for rent increases that are uh, linked to the rpi the one that you would be using in order to ensure that the rent in a following year is increased by the RPI movement in the previous year, but only in the previous year, would be the form of words that the Court of Appeal said this needs to be corrected to read. That would be standard in all landlord and tenancies of this type of nature. Now we're going into what would be reasonable in these circumstances. No, 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 no. There is no, no, no evidence that this is what they meant to say. Well, yes, there is. When you look at the consequences of the literal uh, formula language adopted. No, that's that only gives us an inroad to, to con- test one. That's where we come back to the consequence. We're able to look at the consequence because, as Severine says, if the consequence is so absurd, irrational, arbitrary, as to meets that sort of threshold, that is the clearest indication that the court can uh, have that the parties who are assumed to be rational parties, not necessarily reasonable ones, but rational ones, would not, would not and did not intend that. So the threshold is not reasonability. Uh, what is fair, no, none of that is at all relevant. It's this very high threshold of absurdity. But when you look at the formula and actually see what it means by putting in figures, as opposed to the the formula words themselves, you can see that actually it does look absurd and irrational. You see, no, I agree with you on that. I agree with you on the first part on that, but to me, that is only the first leg of the test. The first is, did the parties mean what they said? The answer is no. The outcome shows that it was irrational. The second part is, okay, now we need to correct it to what the parties actually meant. But we don't have that. In other words, they didn't put their mind to it. And the law in the past has been very clear. If you did not put your mind to it, if you did not think about it, tough luck. No, no, Tim. The, the, for, the formula only needs <laughs> no, no. in no, your The complete and utter. Well, a little bit, because you've, you've got a formula by which you uh, calculate rent increases and it's by the retail price index. Not necessarily. They say they say there is a there are a number of ways, even with the retail price index, that you could start calculating. Particularly in the end result, when Nuji goes on about, uh, you know, do do we consider it to be going up and down, or just up, or you know, all of these are factors that can be taken into account when you look at the RPI. So there's a multitude of ways you can calculate based on the RPI. Even in standard form contracts. No, if you start with the formula that they had and do the least amount of violence to that, 
in order to correct the, the error that has been made, there, there is only one way of doing that, and that's what the Court of Appeal did. That the, that's not uh, the test, though. Well, it, well, it is, in with respect, because if, if you're able to surmount this test that uh, the formula as it's literally understood has a consequence which is absurd, irrational, and so so lacking in in any sense as to justify correction. It's a total abdication of the court's role in terms of in, interpretive corrective interpretation to say, well, we can't go any further than that. You don't have a formula at all. All we can say is that this is that's not how the, uh, English law operates. It would have meant Lord Hoffman in Chartbrook would have said, well, you've got the bracket in the wrong place, but that's as far as I can go. I, I can't make any correction to what you've done. English law says, no, that's crazy. That uh, English law will correct. In fact, the phrase is corrective interpretation. We, we correct it to what it must have meant. But that's, that's, when you, that's, that's where Hoffman knew what they meant. We have no indication of that in this case. Well, we, we do, in fairness, because it... It is only a slip up as to the reference for what year RPI you're talking about in the formula. It should be RPI for the current year over RPI for the previous year. And that's the, the very simple mathematical formula for ensuring that the oh, rent oh, changes only by yeah. reference to the movement in the RPI in the previous single year. That's how anyone with GCSE maths would probably would do it. That's, that's how I would struggle to get that far. Um, you know, you, you, you're, not, you're not going out on a complete limb. The court is not inventing an entirely new formula, which the parties have not thought of themselves. We are using the formula that the parties had. It's their formula, freedom of contract, freedom to be an idiot. But we are correcting it to the extent that we need to remove the absurdity. And so the least amount of violence that we do to that formula is the correction that they actually Fancourt did. goes quite some way in making up the calculation. I think you've, you've beautifully simplified it. I think in the ex post facto justification is, is beautiful on that one. But there is no indication here to show that that, was the, that that was in any kind of way their intention. In fact, I think the true point is they but, didn't put their mind the, to The Court of Appeal does say that Fancourt complicated it and, and got it wrong, I think. So... Yeah, it didn't well, matter. Well, I suppose but... it just shows. Well, they didn't get it wrong. They said it just didn't matter. But the fact that the, there were two, but the, I mean, it does does go to the point that there there were two possible calculations. Yeah, well, no, I think they're way, saying that ways, and... thought that the different way of writing the formula down would have a different consequence mathematically or arithmetically. And the Court of Appeal said know. actually, arithmetically, he was in the it was it was wrong on that point. And that's another indication, isn't it, that we look. I don't know about you two. Have you got A-level maths or something? But, you know, my typical feeling of most lawyers is they are wordsmiths. They deal with the English language. 
you know, maths, arithmetic, formula, complicated calculations like this are not really our thing, are they? I don't know if there's loads of listeners out there who are going to say, oh, no, no, I've got a maths degree and I'm a lawyer. I know what I'm doing here. But I think, you know, statistically, certainly most of the students now, Maggie, that I, teach I will agree. come from the humanities, possibly social sciences, but not a very strong mathematical background. And this case shouts to me that the lawyers dealing with this either messed up the formula themselves or more likely simply took the client's formula and, uh, you know, took took that at face value, as it were, and in good faith. Well, they've checked it. They know about these things. I don't know about these things. And, and how wrong can you be? Well, Maggie, on the on the point of lawyers and maths, I will I will concede 100% I am in full agreement with you on that. Okay, so how far apart are we now, chaps? Have I I am convinced by the decision and it it, it makes, to me, perfect sense. Well, I'm happy with a 2-1 majority win. (laughs) Severine, you traitor. (laughs) That is a strong (laughs) word. It's yes. the... <laughs> this is the new Court of Appeal, is it? Lovely. Well, I think we can probably... I think I think we've identified the main issues and where we differ. I think, I think there is a point to be made on the objectivity-subjectivity front. I think we did quite nicely distinguish it from mistake and, and, and so on. I, I think the, the real ground for difference is, do we know, and that is possibly down to evidence, I suppose, is do we know what they actually meant? And I think, I think that's where the point of contention was. Is it clear that they actually made an error? Yes. And I, I'm, I'm with Hoffman on, on Charbrook, at least to a certain extent. Um, and I think we would have found that both in a subjective or objective context here, particularly if the person was the same who no, was. No, 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 no. You're not taking away decisions. anything. Severine, I'm taking away your me. summary. I think it's nice that Sorry. you've uh, summarized things. So, no, I'm uh, happy with that. Okay. <laughs> I think that sounds good. I think that's probably the end then. Remember, for our listeners, remember that you can contact us with suggestions. And we think this case probably came from a suggestion. Actually, the previous case definitely came from one of our listeners' suggestions. So please email us if there are cases you'd like us to discuss or anything you'd like us to do here. We're always open for suggestions. Uh, You can contact us on unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com. And, well... Thank you very much. Thank you. That's it, I think. Goodbye.